We've seen an abundance of crypto-related books come out over the past couple years, but let's face it, uh, there's a lot to say about the blockchain world. And today, uh, we welcome two authors to the show to discuss their findings. Who's this guy? What is going on here? Is that Oz Sultan? The Wizard of Oz? Oz Sultan doing our teaser. Hey, Oz, can I finish this? Absolutely. Because people are used to hearing my voice. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of weird. Get your own podcast. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Maybe you will. So Sean Weisbrot is a three-time author and the founder and CEO of Sidekick. It's an integrated messaging payments and marketplace ecosystem that utilizes blockchain payments to support many top coins people already know and love. But first, we'll introduce you to Jolanda Rondon. Her experience in crypto regulation led her to pen a novel called The Market. It's a story depicting the rise of cryptocurrency through a fictional company and its developers. Travis is in Denver with me for the ETH Denver Conference and and we've got a couple surprise guest visitors as well. Well, one surprise, because we already said that Oz is here. Hello. <laughs> that may or may not be Elise Sam. So what do you get when you cross a blockchain fact with blockchain fiction? Two great interviews and author Stu and some super groovy surprise guests here on episode number 370 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. And welcome to the Bad Crypto Podcast, where Mr. Travis Wright and I are in the same room in Denver, Colorado. That is true. We're on the high rise here, Mr. Joel Kahn's place in Denver, and there's lots of people here. We're actually doing we're actually doing a podcast here with several people in the room, all of which are friends. Yeah, mostly well, friends, kind of some acquaintancey type people. Except that guy over there in the corner. Who's that guy? What's he doing over there? Just sitting there rummaging through my stuff. Hey, get this giraffe. My, the little giraffe put or, put or Ryan? Down. Oh, Ryan's Ryan, here. Ryan, our business development guy. Oz Sultan is here. Well, that's true. Big round of applause for him in your brain. And, and Elise Sam is here. This is also. Nobody can hear you because you're yep. not talking. Also, microphone. a producer over here. Our producer, Aaron, is here. Yeah, we got some great interviews here for this show. Uh, Travis is in town for ETH Denver. And, and Travis, I know you can be all jelly, but I got to meet Vitalik today. That's great. We got to meet Vitalik's dad. Yeah, you did. We did. Yeah. Oh, and at least. You got the news. I've got the news. Yeah. No, okay, you have to actually hold it in front of you. There you go. Fine. I got, I've got the mic. And actually, when Travis and Ryan and I walked in, um, Vitalik was standing right there. So, yeah, I spoke to him as well and talked to his father, who trained me in blockchain. And so we were talking to all of them about that experience. And then I introduced you to Dimitri. To Dimitri and Travis spoke to him in Russian. Yes, Travis did speak to him in Russian, That's but true. he screwed it up immensely. Yeah, I, messed, <laughs> I messed up my con. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I messed up the conjugations, but uh, that was good. Great, right. great to be. I, I was totally surprised at how young Vitalik's dad is. Oh. So, like, if you think like Vitalik is young and looks young, like his dad is looks like he's in his early thirties. I don't know. Maybe the reverse. Maybe Vitalik is the father. <laughs> maybe it's Benjamin Button type and, of stuff. And, yeah, on. Dimitri. Anyway, glad you guys are here. Got some great content and then some witty banter. It hasn't been witty yet. It's just been banter. But there'll be some witty banter by the time we're done. Well, there's no guarantee it'll be witty. We're not witty banter advisors. It'll just be banterish. 
But what? our sponsor for the show is Divi. They're taking early signups now for their new digital finance ecosystem. It's going to offer crypto debit cards, instant bank accounts, and fiat to crypto on and off ramps right into your wallet. You're going to build little ramps that go right into your wallet with Divi. If you want to be the first in line to get your hands on these services, go to wallet.diviproject.org. Enter your email, wallet.diviproject.org. How many, how many ramps? Uh, on and off ramps. Oh, so two? So at least two. Yeah. I mean, what what other ramps well, do you Well, there's a the handicap ramp, so there may be three. Okay, for those that need a little extra mm-hmm. help getting their crypto on and off. It's true. That's a handicap I've met some ramp. people like that. And speaking of handicap, Mr. Travis Wright, that's how you're feeling right now, at least <laughs> mentally. Well, hey, handicap. we are in Denver, and oh, by the way, Joel goes, hey, uh, we need to record those things. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> okay. Because we're in Denver. Yeah, and, we're already in Denver. And, and a lot of people here are high. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to an interview. There's no confirmation from, you're denying this. There's, con- that. there's confirmation. No, yeah, no, there's, it's not true. There, there was a road trip. That is true. That is true. There there's plenty of confirmation, but we have an interview recorded when you weren't stoned. Mm-hmm. So let's talk to Jolanda Randon. There's been a lot of books released in the crypto marketplace, but I think this is the first one I've seen that is a novel. The book is called The Market, and it depicts the rise of cryptocurrency through a fictional company and its developers. We're pleased to have with us today the author of The Market. Her name is Jolando Rondon. And I think I rolled my R's properly. She's a civil rights and national security attorney in Washington, D.C. and New York. She studied at Case Western University School of Law and Georgetown University Law Center. That's where she learned all about crypto regulation and the principles underpinning its creation. She's here now to talk crypto with us and her new book, The Market. Jolanda, welcome to Bad Crypto. Yes, great. Thank you for having me. And you rolled your R's perfectly. Excellent. I get marks for rolling. Arrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
yeah, we're going to be the one to help scope it, but also we we also essentially advise and get paid lots of money to advise on how old laws can be used to kind of interpret and advise on future regulation. And so mm. crypto is still largely being regulated by the old, um, you know, 1940s SEC regulations around securities. Mm. And so we were really dwelling into that and really attorneys are being paid for their opinions on how that can or cannot apply and what is the best way to design your crypto, your crypto asset or your ICO to uh, get the least regulation as possible, but as well as also abide by the law. You know, no matter who we talk to about this, everybody's got a different opinion on what it's going to take for crypto adoption to really go mainstream. Are you of the mindset because the regulation area is your specialty that that regulation being in in place is going to be the thing that triggers the market? I don't I don't. My opinion is that crypto is not going anywhere. I think it definitely has a a place, um, particularly as we look towards the future and people of course, being more concerned about how the market works. Or you have to look no further than the recent um, coronavirus and the impact that that's having on the economy, um, that people are looking for alternative avenues to grow their wealth, to save their wealth, um, as well as how the economy is going to look like 30, 40 years from now. So you have a, so you have a very unique background. You So before you went to the cryptocurrency law, you were your civil rights and civil liberties law. Is that right? Before that, you, now you went and learned... The, this next level, you got another degree. Correct. I got another degree, at LLM, on top of the, the Nice. Degree. Stacking those skills. That's great. I, I, that's the intent. That's, that's beautiful. Intent. So how do you see that? Because I know that, that uh, you know it's a very unique skill set that you're building. How do they all overlap? And what is your sort of mission and call for all of these, these skills? Because it sounds like you were talking about, you know, different cryptos in, in refugee areas and in developing countries and different things. What? In an ideal world, what does that look like for you and how, how you're going to help do that? Well, I guess in an ideal world, we essentially will be advising communities of color, particularly or those emerging migrant communities um, on, on best practices when it comes to using um, crypto. But not only that, um, how these communities can um, regulate it themselves in their own country states especially when they go back to rebuild. Uh, We can look to the country of Syria for that and the potential aspects there. Um, And they'll they'll be getting their lessons from countries who have already done this, like in in countries in Africa, who have done this a lot with humanitarian aid transfers um, and getting um, direct humanitarian donations from the donor directly to those in need. So there are a lot of aspects and avenues around that as we look into the human rights area and the future of that. Yeah, it appears that you're well-traveled. You know, you've been to China, Guatemala, Palestine, Turkey, uh, but you were raised in the Bronx. So, uh, but having seen so much of the world and having your finger on the pulse of crypto regulation, what countries do you feel like are really leading the way in doing this right? Um, that's a loaded question. Um, uh, that's how I like my questions. I mean, I don't, I don't want to unload them because then there's, you know, no, no, no power there. Yeah, he likes twice baked potatoes, also. Right? <laughs> it's true. I do. <laughs> loaded and then reloaded. That's good. Yeah, I would, I would say, um, I would say for now, I think a great example is um, 
is um, Kenya and their humanitarian efforts around um, use of crypto and Bitcoin. I would say they're also, of course, emerging markets, um, potentially in Brazil, depending upon how much the government plans to be involved in, in infrastructure, like a stable coin. Um, I think a lot of countries have varying degrees into how much is really going to be a truly decentralized currency versus just a stable coin option. I'm curious, can you dig a little deeper on Kenya? What are they doing there that you think is, um, you know, really cutting edge? Well, um, in, in terms of in terms of Kenya, um, they're particularly using Bitcoin and the blockchain technology in order to assess and make sure that transactions are fully going through in regards to humanitarian aid donations. So essentially, they're trying to use it to curb corruption mm. and um, curb bribery, which is always a big issue when it comes to um, big governments and funding, even in this country. Um, so I think that is cutting edge when it's a historical, um, you know, a historical background in African countries with a lot of corruption and concerns around donations given to um, countries in need. You say even in this country, I would say especially in this country, you know. So. <laughs> well, well, I, I would say that because um, I think most people try to be optimistic that at least we're supposed to allegedly have the infrastructure and the agencies in place that are supposed to be providing oversight to prevent that type of aspect. Whereas in other countries, most people tend to frame the perspective as that country is a matter of course, it's a matter of culture, right? Like in order to keep the lights on, you have to bribe the electrician, right? That's just what you have to do. And so when we, when, and those are on lower levels versus corruption in this country is a little bit more higher, uh, higher aspects that, not, that might not necessarily affect everyone's day-to-day life, such as getting electricity. Let me so yeah, that's great. This is interesting stuff because there's so many different areas I think that we could go off and ask different questions about. But I think one of the things we want to cover for sure is you wrote a book, and yes. this, the book is called The Market Crypto Wall Street. And the description is the market is a realistic novel exploring cryptocurrency and blockchain technology through its protagonist Moto and his creation of Bitcoin. And it explores the intersection of this innovation with silver liberties as the government's demand for control over industry grows with crypto's rise. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on there that's, that sounds right on. That so it's like a it's like a it's like a novel based on truth, right? Kind of a kind of a oh, realistic novel is what you call it. Nice. Tell us tell us more about it and how you decided to write a book on this topic. Well, I, I took the course, of course, and that that sparked my interest and. When I was just coming home to New York on a winter break, and I saw a Bitcoin ATM in, of all places, Brooklyn, like Flatbush, Brooklyn, where it's a large um, Caribbean immigrant community. Mm. And I asked the I asked the bodega, right? I asked the, that's what we call the corner stores. Um, if anyone uses the ATM, like how long they've had it, things of that nature. They were like, not really. They're like, some people come ask questions about it, but they really just got it because it was placed there for free, right? Mm. I guess, you know, the people were trying to test the market yeah, um, yeah. In, in that community area. And so it sparked my attention that all over the world um, in other communities, um, Bitcoin is well known and used, even in uh, um, lower um 
economic demographics, but not so much in the United States. The United States is largely those who have disposable income who are involved or invested or those who have um, some level of college education. Um, and that to me seemed the conflict, right, with the underlying principles for the, you know, alleged creation of Bitcoin, right? The asking about getting to the unbanked and the disenfranchised um, communities who didn't have traditional access to the financial structures. And so I was like, why? Why is my community not more involved? Why does my community are not as educated? And um, there is an outreach and education awareness issue, but it's also an aspect about being able to communicate this technology to the population. And I thought the novel was a unique way to do that, capture um, community's attention, but also explore all the risks um, associated with it, because that's also another issue. So I wanted to be as transparent as possible, but also encouraging um, interest in this industry um, from, from these disenfranchised communities. I have great admiration for people that are able to write fiction. Both Travis and I are authors of nonfiction books, and it's one thing to tell people about something. It's another to, from your imagination, develop these characters and the story of what they do. And, uh, you know, once upon a time, writing fiction was on my bucket list, and I just, I don't think I have it in me. So I congratulate you for that. Uh, I'm curious, the uh, the writing process for you, did you know where this book was going? going where you you know did you have the end in mind or are you one of those writers that you just start and it unfolds and you're almost as surprised you know where you get at the end as the reader is I was surprised I'm, I'm not a writer uh I'm not <laughs> well you are now I mean you wrote a book that's that's a writer no I, no I agree but more so like you this was even a learning and growing process for me because I'm, I'm trained to write in a legal way, meaning, right, there's an issue, there's a rule, there's an analysis, there's an end. And in this aspect, I didn't have an ending in mind. Um, I got to interview a lot of um, interesting people for this book, including um, Alice Gladstein, um, who's with um, Human Rights um, Organization. And so those people really interviewing the people for the book really inspired me to see where the story was heading. Of course, I had to um, paraphrase and include in, like, you know, amazing corrupt scandals that occurred in the Bitcoin world, including like the Silk Road, including um, the Mount Gox and, and those those type of scandals, um, just so that the reader is intrigued and is also like able to pinpoint, okay, I see where this came from, right? I see these this inspiration, this conversation. I also got to um, speak at conferences with, of course, um, Ethereum founder and the Ripple Labs founder at conferences. And so those little two-minute conversations also inspired portions of the book as well and where this, the novel went. So as you've done your, your research and, and with your law background, what most excites you about blockchain? Like, how do you think blockchain is most going to positively impact the world aside from the crypto aspect of things? Well, I'm, I'm really curious as to, um, I just went to a, a conference the other day, but I'm really curious as to the aspect of people being able to control their own privacy and information. Um, there's a lot of interest with that, with essentially there being some type of wallet where the individual controls the release of their information, whether it's social security numbers, 
um, their their employment background, um, all those information that's required every time you go on a an employment interview or every time you apply for a credit card. Traditionally, are going through a major credit union or a major block that's holding your information, is in control of your things. You're asking them permission to release it to a third party. So there are talks now about trying to use blockchain technology um, for those purposes, about control of identity and privacy um, for the future. Most excellent. Well, it looks like you've got a, a lot to say and, you know, you're just really your career is still young. You're going to be doing this for many years and probably going to become quite a prolific voice in the blockchain uh, legal world and perhaps in the reading world as well. The book is available at Amazon.com. You guys can go look it up there, The Market. And actually, there's a Kindle edition that is, at least as of this interview, available for $2.99. That sounds like you can't lose. Yes, it's also available at Barnes & Nobles. Oh, fantastic. I don't even have my book there now, so good on you. <laughs> yes. I, I would just like to say also, like, um, I you know, talked about this book so many times, but I think what's really interesting, which I even learned about when doing this book, um, is that even nowadays, like the transfer of the cost of money of sharing your spending your money overseas is so expensive that, you know, corporate officials even take planes like to the UK and other countries just to give money to their subsidiaries. And I, I thought that was something that especially in my generation, we're like, what? You still can't transfer your mother, your money quickly um, without um, such, you know, substantial fees. And so it, it's really it was really a learning experience for me to reflect that. Even with all this technology, we still have a lot to go. Well, this is cool. I'm, I'm interested. So, so Moto sounds like you know, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto. Like, who are some of the other characters in in the book, and are they based on other people who we might know? Like, is there a Joel? Is Joel in your book? Uh, <laughs> is there a bad crypto podcast in your book that they listen why, to because they why, love crypto? Why is that funny, Yolanda? I mean, is it so ridiculous that we would be a character in your book? I mean, put me in, coach. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 def- I'm definitely I'm open to it. You know, maybe we can work on a book together. Future, you'll be a, a character. But um, I, I was I was inspired also by um, government officials. Um, and so the government's and congressional legislation that's pending to regulate. And so um, there is a, a character in my book um, th- that's based upon uh, the SEC chairman, um, um, as well as the CFTC chairman and their involvement essentially in a, a big uh, Ponzi scheme scandal involving um, Bitcoin and crypto and in their efforts to um, legislate um, and cover it up. Um, and, and I think that aspect is not suggesting that the government is um, in cahoots with any criminal activity, but it's about um, exposing essentially the lack of education or knowledge in this area. Um, and that was reflective um, in the recent, you know, congressional hearings around technology period, but particularly cryptocurrency and and their lack of education, but still want to regulate something. And then, of course, my characters are also inspired by um, the um, different um, CEOs of cryptocurrency um, and statements they've made in the press. And so you will see that there's also a story covered that involves, you know, 
you know, allegations of, 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 how can I say, um, <laughs> I don't want to get sued, but <laughs> that I'm, I'm not going to sue you, Travis. <laughs> you promise not to sue her. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to sue. Okay. Hey, Bankruptopia, be nice. Don't sue. Yeah. Don't sue. Yeah don't, yeah. don't sue me. But, um, that, that, you know, involves a lot of, um, allegations and, and scandals, um, concerning particularly, uh, a big social media uh, company that's trying to introduce uh, a cryptocurrency um, and their role in it um, in light of privacy and data breaches and information being leaked everywhere. Um, and so it, it really tries to um, intrigue and address those issues um, so that the reader can relate to say, hey, this makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is what's going on today in my life. So. So hopefully they will be intrigued by the story, learn a little something about crypto and, and want some more. Is there an audiobook version? There is not an audiobook version yet. Okay. But well, let me give you a taste of it. Sam had a long day at work. It seemed like it would never end. Taking over the family farm was decided by virtue of his birth, but tough. Nevertheless, Sam went to school for accounting, a somewhat different life than trudging through rows of strawberries and stacking strawberries for sale. His parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and their parents before them have always grown strawberries. It was their livelihood. There you go. That was very nice. I was trying to, that's, I was going to fast forward it though. I was going to do like, do like the two X on it so I could re- hear it faster. <laughs> that's the opening to the book. So we're going to, we're going to meet Sam and let's see. So there's actually a sample on the Amazon site. You can see like the first few pages. There's Brad and uh, there's Joe. Oh, Joel, whole- Joel, Joel. Oh, Joe, Joe. 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 Uh, no. Sorry. Sorry, Joel. Yeah. Yeah, and Moto. Moto makes his appearance early on. So, uh, well, we appreciate you coming on, Yolanda. Thanks for uh, joining us, and, and good luck with your book. Thank you. Yolanda Rondon, excellent interview with her. Uh, also, you know what? She wrote a great book. You guys should definitely check that out. Also, something you should check out, CryptoTaxAudit.com. That's an annual subscription service. It provides audit defense for taxpayers, specifically designed for people who have cryptos. And you know, you've seen on the latest thing for the IRS, it says, have you received any cryptos this year? You got to check a little thing on the thing. So make sure you get yourself a nice crypto tax expert. It's like a subscription, like kind of like an insurance policy for your cryptos. So make sure you get everything done all legally. Cryptotaxaudit.com. Go check it out. Defend and yourself. Proof that Mr. Travis Roy can read while stoned. Dude, I could, I'm amazing. <laughs> Three-fourths of the interviews we've done, I'm stoned. <laughs> because we are indeed this interview conducted while maybe he was on the wacky weed maybe he wasn't a lot of weed talk here while in colorado this is sean white actually had a business idea about weed too we could talk about let's talk about that after (laughs) the interview okay here we go mr travis wright you have been to china i have not i have been to china i have a 10-year visa to go to china do you remember last year I was supposed to go and got to the airport and actually had to turn around because uh, China said the government said they'd have my visa on the ground when I got there. But in the U.S., they wouldn't let me get on the plane mm. because I didn't have the visa in hand. So I was actually packed standing at the check-in counter and I couldn't go anywhere. I remember that. I was laughing yeah. on the inside. That's not nice. I just, just this thing. But it's <laughs> kind of funny to be like, oh, I'm, luckily it wasn't like you got to China and they were like, sorry, sucker. Go back. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it just around. a way better scenario. Could have been worse. 
We talk a lot about what's going on in China on this show, but we have somebody with us today who actually spent a lot of time in China, at least 10 years or so, and he's he's in Vietnam now, but he knows a lot of people in China. He founded a nonprofit in Shenzhen called Idea Exchange. Uh, he knows a lot about blockchain, and right now he's the founder and CEO of Sidekick, which is a um, messaging payment marketplace ecosystem that uses blockchain payments to support many of the top coins that you already know. His name is Sean Weisbrett, and Sean, welcome to the Bad Crypto Podcast. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you both. Absolutely. So you moved to China right out of college, is that right? That's right. 2008, about two months after I got my diploma in my hands, I had a job in China and I was on the ground there. Well, was that just something you always like, when I graduate, I want to go to China? I knew in high school that I didn't want to stay in the States after I finished university. But I knew that the only way I could get a job overseas and get out of the States was to have a degree from a, an American university. So I ended up just getting my degree so that I could go. And then as soon as I finished, I looked for jobs and went. Now, did you study Chinese when you were in college? I mean, how... how how familiar were you with the language by the time you got over there? Because that language is, I can't read it at all. I can speak some of it, but I can't, there's, I can't see any letters unless it's, you know, it's like they, they're phonetically spelling it out so I can sound it out. But I, that, 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 that their, their alphabet is very challenging. So I actually taught myself German in high school and I took German for most of college as well. I was one class away from getting a minor in German. I even studied abroad in uh, Austria in Salzburg, which is where the sound of music, I think that's the name of the, the movie. The hills are alive with the sounds of Bitcoin. <laughs> so um, I was actually quite heavily focused on that since my last name is Weisbrot. So I wanted to kind of learn more about my heritage. Um, and then when I finished, I thought I could go to Germany possibly for work, but then I realized that I wanted to do something different. And so I ended up looking at Asia. So I, I purposely chose not to know anything about China when I went so that I could learn from scratch for real rather than assuming I knew what I was doing and then realizing there was a lot of mistakes and then having to fix them. Uh, you know, I, I have a, a talent for language. Um, and so I knew it would be easy to pick it up once I got there. I have a talent for the English language. That's, you know, I'm good at that. Learned it from the time I was little. Kind of. Pretty good. Sort of. Pretty good at the sometimes, words. Some of the words. Sometimes I do. Yeah. Uh, so you, you moved to China. And when did you go down the blockchain rabbit hole? I first heard about blockchain when I was in um, the States for a, a visit in 2011. A friend of mine wanted me to go in on a miner with him. And I didn't understand it. And he didn't sell it well. So I said no. And then uh, after I started doing the idea exchange in 2014, we had an Israeli speaker talking about Bitcoin and he was getting really technical into it and I didn't understand it. So I ignored it again. And then another Israeli friend in China in 2015 was like, hey, man, Bitcoin, blockchain, you got to learn about it. So I said, all right, this is the third time I've heard about it. Like, all right, let's let's get into it. And uh, so around October 2015 is when I really started to spend like five, six hours a day learning about the, you know, the structure of the chain and, and what it could do and uh, all of that. So you said you left China a couple of years ago. So was that right around the time when China was coming after some of the blockchain companies? And you're like, oh, well, if, if blockchain and this crypto is illegal, I got to get the hell out of here. And so you moved to Vietnam. Is that kind of what happened? 
Yeah, that's the short of it. Essentially, uh, in September 2017, Xi Jinping was holding one of the normal five-year Congress meetings to plan out the next five years. And he made it pretty clear that crypto was banned at that point. And normally, after the first five-year meeting uh, of a you know of one of the leaders, they kind of trot out the next guy who's going to follow them. And he didn't do that. So I immediately knew something was wrong. And then about a month or so later, he said, you know, to the people, okay, I've decided to amend the constitution. I'm now, you know, leader for life. And at the point I was uh, in the States for a month holiday. So I said, all right, I'm not going back. And I left my apartment and I left half of my things there. um, And I just didn't, didn't go back. That's kind of what we've done here, too. You know, Travis and I have basically said we're leaders for life. Uh, We are the benevolent dictators of the Republic of Bad Cryptopia. And, you know, if you don't like it, then mm, don't don't hang out in our republic. We did. uh, We've done vast research on ourselves, investigated ourselves. We found ourselves not to be guilty of anything. We've cleared ourselves of all everything. And it's good. We're uh, we're here for life. <laughs> so t- talk a little bit about this uh, nonprofit that you founded while you're in Shenzhen Idea Exchange. What's that all about? So I had applied to be a speaker with Ted and I was rejected. So I decided to make my own Ted. Oh, Ted, Ted Turner. Why didn't he like you? <laughs> no, the, the Ted, Ted Talks. So uh, what I realized after being rejected from them was that they are quite elitist where the people on stage are wealthy and successful and well-known and the people in the audience listening to them have paid thousands of dollars to listen to them. And then they have videos where people, you know, the poor people on the internet get to watch for free. And what I decided to do was something where anybody could speak. Obviously I was curating who was allowed to go on stage, but you know, everybody uh, could get on the stage and give a speech and anybody could come in and listen for free. And we wouldn't have any videos um, online for people to watch. You have to be there to experience it. And we were the only uh, English language event like this in Shenzhen. So we very, very quickly got traction. Um, the first month we put no, not much effort into um, the marketing. And we had 100 people come to, an, to a venue that was only really meant to hold 30 or 40. The next month... The uh, government had a library in one part of the city and they offered to let us use the venue for free. It held 250 people, 350 showed up. The next month, a different part of the government in a different part of the city offered us a different venue that could hold 700 and 500 people showed up. And then the next month, 600 people showed up. The next month, 700 people showed up. Within the first six months of us starting, we had 700 people attending on a monthly basis. Um, with with government support, media support, all of it, you know, we were doing the event for free. So we were getting a lot of free support from them as well. And the goal was just to educate people and inspire them through that education and give them an opportunity to meet people that they may normally never have the ability to meet and interact with and do it completely in English. It wasn't about learning English. I want to distinguish that. You know, a lot of the people were talking about their failures or their successes in business and life and things like that. But we did it through English because a lot of people could speak English. And so we wanted to give them a way to really utilize what they had learned and, and all of that. So I guess my question would be around, you know, because so this would be what, 2014 in China. Now, is this, is this a little bit before they started clamping down on information? It, kind of, it sounds like they were actually helping you kind of a free flow of information. Was there any concerns about censorship or anything at that time? 
So the government started clamping on clamping down on the freedom of information many years before that. Um, starting around when I first noticed it, really was in 2010 when Google went dark, and 2011, I believe, was when Facebook went dark.、Mm. But the difference between Shenzhen, where I was living, and the rest of the country is that Shenzhen is given a lot more autonomy in the way it does things, and so. Uh, what happens is Shenzhen gets to trial all of the new laws and ideas, and if it works, they send it out to the rest of the country.、Um, for example, they had、uh, face unlock for being able to use payments in Shenzhen before they are going to send it anywhere else.、Uh, the, there's a lot of benefits to living in Shenzhen, and one of them is that the government officials there are much more open-minded, and so even though a lot of people Would be concerned, or as you said, should be concerned about you know fear of the government trying to censor. The first time the the government gave us the venue that held seven hundred people, they wanted to look at the、uh, powerpoints that people were going to you know be using, and I wasn't happy about it, but I showed them the powerpoints and they asked me some questions and I explained the answers. Um, you know, the the goal for me was to express to them that look, I might be a foreigner, but I've lived in China already for seven years. I love this country. It's why I'm here. You know, why would I stay here to promote chaos? You know, when I could be anywhere in the world doing anything I want. I don't have to be here. I choose to be here. You know, I had a Chinese partner helping me as well,、um, and she was very important in maintaining a positive relationship with the government. Um, on my behalf, because although they tolerated me, they made it very clear that the only reason they allowed Idea Exchange to exist was because the Chinese partner was there. So you know, I, I knew my place, but generally, after that first event, they left me alone.、Uh, in fact, they they frequently attended the events and brought their kids with them, and you know, it was it was a good positive experience for everybody. So they knew that we were on the same page. You know, China seems to have changed position on blockchain a couple times, and and now the stories that we're hearing are that okay, this is the future. And、uh, so, what do you hear from people that you talk to, or are they going to be the first, you know, major world power to release a、uh, a state crypto? And you know, are they going to lift their bans on on certain exchanges and Bitcoin trading? What just What's the vibe that you're getting? the The central government's position is that crypto is bad because they have no control over it. So, as far as I can see, cryptos will never be legal again, ever. But blockchain is good, and you can have a blockchain without a crypto. So they are focused on developing the use cases of blockchain while. Ignoring the benefit of cryptocurrency, where they want to be in control of the entire economic system, and so that's why they're developing their own central bank digital currency. Whether that ends up being a a pure cryptocurrency in its own right has yet to be seen, and probably not because that would require a level of privacy that and you know that the government isn't willing to allow. But at the same time, the the reason the Chinese government wants to develop this currency is because. They don't want to be beholden to the dollar. A lot of governments around the world are realizing that the dollar is not the best thing to be holding anymore, and so they want to get around it. And you know, for them, being able to develop something that can. 
go around it means that they can deal with Iran, they can deal with North Korea, they can deal with Russia and all of the other countries that the U.S. sanctions without having to deal with sanctions themselves. And or they can allow uh, other countries to settle trade with them without needing to go through the dollars. So, you know, having this central bank digital currency can give them an immense amount of power that the U.S. government won't be able to do anything about. And the Chinese government's made it clear that they do see themselves as a world power. They believe that the U.S. is on its way out. And if you compare what's going on in China to what's going on in the U.S., you can see very clearly from the outside, looking into both countries, that the U.S. is on its way out. And that's why they are so protective of the dollar. I mean, if you look at Muammar Gaddafi, he tried to, to get you know, people off uh, the U.S. dollar for trading oil, and now he's dead. So there's, there's only so much that uh, every country can really accept before their own economy tanks because of their reliance on the dollar. Um, so blockchain represents a really unique opportunity for these governments to develop their own systems that can allow them very quickly to get away from the dollar. Yeah, I definitely think we got to keep an eye on that. One thing that I learned about going to China and understanding the Chinese culture is that, you know, here in America, we have a quarterly plan. Every company is like trying to get their numbers for their next quarter. And you just you laid it out like China has a five year plan, but China not only has a five year plan, they have like a 400 year plan. And, you know, it's like here's because China has been around for what, over five, six thousand years or however many years. So. You know, in America, you think, oh, we have a 400-year-old plan. Well, America's not even 400 years old. America's not even 300 years old, right? America's not even 250 years old. And so when you look at that, and China's had so many of these scenarios where they've they've overcome whatever's happened, and the Chinese just keep cruising on, they have, they have longevity. So they have these long-time five-year goals, 25-year goals, 100-year goals, and 400-year goals. That's amazing. I've never seen any other sort of culture that does that. And I think that that's why they're able to, you know, compete globally, you know, and and effectively in some ways, because they they think beyond just today, they're looking sort of long term. Yeah. And there's a few reasons why. Yeah. What is that? So essentially, if you so what I've noticed in China was if they want to get something done, it gets done. Because there is no two or three or four or five party system debating whether something should or shouldn't be done. The person at the top makes the decisions and the people below just do it. Not only that, but because they have this five-year plan, they have the ability to deploy the capital to make it possible. So for example, uh, right now you see the government investing very heavily into artificial intelligence and blockchain. Well, The difference between China and the U.S. is that the U.S. has private capital that invests in the ideas they think are good. And then you have the Chinese government, which invests in whatever they think is important. And so there's I don't know how many AI companies there are, but I imagine there's at least 100 AI companies being funded by the Chinese government for various things. And the heaviest or the the most Important one is facial recognition, which they're using uh, with their social credit system, and they're using it to uh, shame people. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, where if someone's jaywalking across the street, there's a camera that has AI recognition, uh, facial recognition in it. It can tell who the person is, and then they'll put the person's photo, uh, you know, with their ID, their information, their personal information, and a live feed of them breaking the law 
on public buses and metros so people can shame them. You know, so there's a lot of that going on, things that we would consider dystopian, but things that they don't really think about. Um, and and there's a big issue for, there was a big issue for me as an American and a lot of expats I know in China and probably a lot of other Americans would agree that a lot of the things that China does is scary and dystopian for us, but for them, for the locals there, they don't really care because they never really had that privacy and freedom on a personal level. So it's no worse than yesterday because they never had anything to compare it with. You just kind of get used to whatever you've got. This is, you know, this is how life is. This is what's expected. And so this is, we live with it, right? Right. So the, the Chinese government, you know, around the time of Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s said, basically, we're going to do everything we can to increase the quality of your life via economic freedoms. And, and that kind of made China more of a socialist country than a communist country, since communist countries have no economic freedoms whatsoever. And Chinese have the ability to buy and sell properties and businesses and stocks and, you know, they can do international trade and they can get visas and leave the country and travel anywhere they want, basically. So on a on a personal level and in economic terms, they have a solid amount of freedom. But politically, there is no freedom. And because for the last several generations, there's been no such sort of political freedom, they don't question it because, hey, my life is better now. I can eat that, you know, I'm, you know, some of the people you may go and talk to now, their parents or their grandparents, they didn't have school because there were people rioting. There was red marches. Um, you know, there was the cultural uh, revolution, the Great Leap Forward, times at which, you know, people were eating bark to survive. So right now they have it pretty damn good in China. Um, and so they have no reason to question what's going on because the government is taking care of them to the best of their ability. So the, the government realizes that there's a lot of people and they could very easily revolt. So as long as they continue to improve the quality of their life in terms of economic freedom and, and daily improvement of, uh, you know, uh, the environment, cleaning up the environment and trying to be more green friendly. In fact, the Chinese government I believe is the heaviest um, investor in green technology in the world. So, you know, they, they know that there's some things they have to do in order to maintain power and they're doing their best to do it. And those five-year plans help to make it possible. Um, so really the, the largest difference between China and the U S is the Chinese government uses its capital to invest in private entities. And the American government is hand off hands off and allows private equity to flow into those uh, private ventures. And so, um, you know, China moves faster because they're the ones with the money and they say go. And that's it. America won't be able to catch up. So then is that does that sort of tie in maybe to your thinking around the project that you're working on called Sidekick? Because you're building this messaging and payments and marketing, this sort of marketplace ecosystem. Now, is this is this encrypted? And does this have some what, what kind of, you know, tie in does this have to your Chinese experience? Because is this something where you're looking to encrypt more or you're trying to create privacy for folks what is your what is your thoughts behind sidekick so i was in china when wechat began and i watched wechat go from zero to domination across the entire chinese market mm -hmm. living and and traveling in other countries around southeast asia i've seen their similar products like line cacao and zalo yeah. where what they do is they they try to dominate as many aspects of a local market's daily lifestyle as possible if you take that concept and you look at Silicon Valley, generally you see a company do one thing globally. 
And so my inspiration was, well, WeChat is basically, you know, it's the, the Chinese government has a stake in it and they have a backdoor and they tell them what to do sometimes. And they have the ability to read your deleted chat histories, which is well-known, documented, publicized. There's articles about it. Um, I believe some in English you guys can find if you're curious to learn more. And so for me, one of the reasons that these companies are stuck in their local market only is because they're dealing with the yuan or the yen or the yuan uh, or the dong. And by creating something that's similar then and supporting cryptocurrencies as the main form of payment, then we can instantly globalize. And you know, obviously, privacy and security are extremely important for me as an American and also one of the motivations for me to do this because... I can't trust Messenger or Telegram or WeChat or WhatsApp or any of these other applications to not, one, steal my information and then sell it to others or to store my information indefinitely, possibly in plain text and things like that. So No, no, no. WhatsApp's um, totally encrypted, bro. It's totally encrypted. It's good. It's safe. Facebook says. Yeah, that's what they say. But. <laughs> not, not so much. So what is the, the website for Sidekick and uh, why should people check it out? So the website is sidekickapp.io, S-I-D-E-K-I-C-K-A-P-P.io. What makes us really unique is that we're taking multiple aspects of platforms that people already use on a daily basis, building them from scratch in our own way, seamlessly integrating them with each other, and making it really easy for anyone to get involved and use it and develop their own communities that we're going to support paid groups for that are also private. People can pay in cryptocurrencies. So if you're an influencer, even you guys, if you have a private community of people that want to access you, if you're talking about trading or whatever you're talking about, you can charge them in this group and we essentially automate everything for you. The onboarding of those users, the payment of those users, the payout to you. Um, and that's just one thing that we do that nobody else does. And we're also going to have uh, this e-commerce marketplace that'll allow people to sell digital and physical goods and services. We'll have shipping and tracking APIs. We're also building a file manager and a task manager, and you'll be able to share files and share tasks with each other in private uh, uh, chats and group chats. So it's it's a lot about also supporting the growth of the future of work, which is remote and Sidekick is a fully remote team from day one. We have 10 people right now, full time, all working from wherever they choose to work in different countries. And that is the future. And more people are freelancers, they're hustling, they're starting their remote businesses. And we want to provide a professional type network for them to be able to work with in the platform that enables them to monetize their knowledge, their experience, their community, uh, and their you know products and services. So Sidekick is meant to do a lot of different things and it's very big. It's very ambitious, but that's the point. We need something that kind of puts everything together because right now, you know, you're using Squadcast to record. You're using probably YouTube for some of your, uh, you know, interviews. You may even have a Patreon. So you're using multiple platforms to manage different aspects of your podcast when Sidekick can handle most of it in one. And so our goal is to help kind of flush out companies like Patreon that are useless and just kind of steal your money 
because you're bringing them people where with us, we have a, a deep network discovery system through a, a LinkedIn style profile, which is very deep and has tags and people can find each other through these different tags. And you can find groups through the tags. You can find marketplace items through the tags. You know, there's a lot of that involved in it. And uh, we're not using people's SIM cards. So, you know, the SIM card is connected to your government ID. And a lot of these platforms go, yeah, you know, we don't need to log in because we're going to just use your SIM card. But our theory is the government knows who you are. So if the government knows that you're downloading our platform or downloading our app and using your SIM card to get into it, well, then they know who you're talking to because they can see messages going back and forth between phone numbers, essentially, on the platform. And so it was important for us to build something different that doesn't touch SIM cards so that users can have that sort of freedom. And one of the things we're also doing as well is the wallet addresses uh, are hidden behind the user name. So you don't have to remember someone's wallet address. You can just go to the contact list and find their name and type, you know, press it once. It gets filled in and then you can send them the money directly inside of the private chat or the group chat. So there's no need for, for people to know their private keys or their wallet addresses. And I know some people will say, not your keys, not your coins, fair enough, but one of the things for us is that we recognize the larger market, the one that has yet to be converted, which is what mainstream adoption is about. They don't understand private keys. They don't understand wallet addresses. They don't understand anything about this. And the only way that it's going to be easy for them to get in is by making it easy to get in. And so custodial wallets are a good first step for us in making that possible by allowing you know, the hiding of the, the keys and the address. So they just have to focus on the username, something like they're used to with Venmo or PayPal. Um, and at the same time, by having a, a custodial wallet system, we have a private internal ledger, which means if a user sends you know, Bitcoin from one sidekick wallet to another, it doesn't hit the blockchain, which means no government will be able to know who sent what to who, when and where and why and how. It's only when they take it out of the system that it hits the blockchain. So it's, it's very private in that sense as well. So I'm on the website. It looks like you're uh, having signups for early access and you're giving people 100 free tokens, I guess. They're KAI, K-I-A, K-A-I credits. Kai, yes. And uh, when will the, yes, when will the beta of KAI be uh, available? So we're shooting to launch in January uh, for our Android private beta. Now, I, I want to say real fast, Kai is not a token. It, we don't have our own blockchain. We don't have our own token. The reason being the market's shifted a lot in the last year since we started, and it's no longer important for people to have a new coin. They want to use the coins they've already invested in or that they already hold. And so for us, Kai was originally a blockchain token. We, we, burnt, the to we burnt the token. We burnt, burnt the chain. It's gone. The software, everything's been deleted. Instead, what we're doing is a uh, kind of like an airline mile loyalty system. So if you register, you get Kai. If you refer your friends, you get Kai. If you fill out your profile details, you get Kai. If you spend Bitcoin or, or any other cryptocurrency inside of the system, whether you're sending payments to other people or purchasing services, you get Kai. So we want people to earn Kai for a lot of different reasons. And then the way that they'll be able to use it is if they go to purchase something from us, for example, our premium analytics dashboard for managing groups or the marketplace uh, shops, they'll be able to get a discount on those services by applying Kai as a discount. So yeah, it has no money. Yeah, like why didn't you name it Kickbacks? Because that's that's good. 
So originally, <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time about your marketing. Like, what is a Kai? What is it? Does it stand for something? Yeah. So, uh, so Kai is uh, there's a Chinese word for you know Kai has a, a Chinese meaning. It has a Japanese meaning. Um, in Chinese, it means to open. So you could say, for example, "Qing uh, Kai Men." That means please open the door. So Kai is like is open minded kind of a feel. Okay. Okay. Um, in Japanese, it means it means welcome. Um, and we're we're an Asian company. We're registered in Singapore. Everybody lives in Asia, okay, okay. Um, as gotcha. well. And on top of that, uh, K there's you know K is in Sidekick, and we in the beginning we were heavy on the AI, which now we're, we're taking a step back from that a little bit. Um, and so K AI Sidekick AI Kai. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of different individual reasons for that and as well because we wanted it to be a blockchain asset we wanted it to be short enough to be a, a trading symbol but also like a slang for a word for example you wouldn't have you know you don't call usd you call it a buck you call it a dollar right mm-hmm. you got slang so, for you got cash you got you got you got some bucks right so we wanted to establish this uh currency slang kind of a term for it at the same time as it being a trading symbol but since then we've gotten rid of the the fact that it's going to be tradable and all that outside of the platform. So I like the groups. I think that's cool. You know, it's like, as people do, they like to, they like to chat in there and have their own little areas and, 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 and chat about things. So I think that's pretty handy. And you got a cool little ecosystem. It sounds like where can people learn more? Yeah. Uh, well, we have a telegram channel that they can go to right now to learn more as well as the website. Our telegram is just sidekick app. So t.me slash sidekick app. Most awesome. Well, Sean, thanks for uh, sharing about your project and for giving us a better feel for what's happening on the ground on the other side of the world. Okay. Cheers. And there we go. Told you that we were going to have both blockchain fact and fiction, Mr. Travis, right? Yeah, that was a really interesting story. He had lived in China for 10 years, sort of absorbed the culture, the language, working with some great technologists over there. So some interesting stuff. People getting involved in the blockchains. A lot of great stuff happening in the blockchain. And here we are at this conference, East Denver. Lots of cool stuff going on there. I don't know. Have you guys, you've got your, everybody, I think most of us have our badges yet. Oz, you haven't got your badge yet, right? No, I just got in tonight. So. Right. Badges. So the badges are really cool. There's a QR code on them. You don't need and, those. And then you got badge. to uh, open up your, your Buffadow app. And there's like money inside that for you to you buy the food trucks. And there's like, they're gamifying this thing. Joel, what's, what all's going on? Do you know have the skinny on it? Uh, well, I've got the fat on it because okay. I've got fat rolls going on me right now. Um, so, yeah, they're gamifying the conference, and there's various sponsors that are offering badges for doing certain activities, taking actions. You earn mm-hmm. XP to unlock these badges. And I guess when all is said and done, people who have the most XP will, I don't know, get in a group photo or they have something in the voting towards the end you know it might it might pay to explain that this is a really unique crypto conference this is not like yeah. any of the other ones we go to mm-hmm. but you know what's they kind of, actually yeah. so you know what's kind of cool about that it's almost like they're throwing the foursquare model back from early foursquare mm. i mean everything south by southwest like half of the cons you went to everything was driven by getting badges yeah you know and it was also like a big goala yeah, it was a big go. It was huge. And it was and it was a big social experience. I've been trying to time. get the creator of it to revisit it. And he thinks about it from time to time. We've actually been friends since he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And Seriously, I've been telling him so it's time to, you know, to revisit 
Goala because I loved it. It was great. Cryptala because it was it was social, but you were engaging with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Those like badges it, were beautiful. It was like a passport badge. Yeah. You're like so cool. It was like Pokemon for six months. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Um, this so this, this event. Is, this is cool. They're all they're developing. This is uh, it's you know a hackathon. So you've got all these people that are super brainy mm-hmm. that are creating projects. In fact, we're going to all night. They'll be there all night tonight. They're yeah, because they're hacking and thawing. Mm-hmm. So uh, Patri- it's like a telethon, isn't it? We've uh, talked about Patricia Worthaler, our friend that mm-hmm. made the POAP app. That was actually brain childed, given birth word. at ETH Denver last year. Mm-hmm. And now he's got a thing that we're using in fact i think we're going to get to interview him on location at the event in the morning i was excited to see him smart dude like this whole this whole proof of attendance protocol thing is such a cool thing to be able to prove i was at this event like how many people like later on down the road like or imagine like i was at the martin luther king speech i have a dream speech like imagine like big things like that i was at the thing like having digital collectibles that are forever on the blockchain because here's what happens now like for example I went to the wild card game a couple of years ago in baseball, and I didn't get a ticket. I got a freaking printout from my printer. Like, I have nothing cool to remember to prove that I was at that game. You could really, really expand on that. Think about it. Like, if you tokenize that in some form, you can make it somewhat historical, you know, and be able to download the social media from that person like experiencing that event and then you know their notes on the event and whatnot mm. they could like they could really expand in that if you think about it mm. i like it yeah. mm-hmm. that's elise sam our friend from give nation yeah. How, okay give us a hand her back the mic a second there Oz. don't be a bike hog Oz is a mic hog. Oz is like, Oz wants his own podcast. That's, he, that's what's going on he here. He does. He totally does. No, it wasn't offered to him. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Oh, Give us a quick update on Give. On Give. Yeah, Give Nation is doing great. We have uh, partnered with Everpedia, and we have also partnered with Brave and um, um, Pat Global as well. And things are going really great. We got our first um, investment, actually. So we are scaling in the UK. We've got a country manager in the UK now. And the woman that is doing Shopkins and Pokemon and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that launch is actually our chief marketing officer. So, yeah, we've got a lot of exciting power. Yes, yes. And we've got investors that are actually... Um, asking for our pitch deck a lot, and we just updated it. So we're trying to branch out. We're trying to raise over two million to expand. So if anybody's interested, they can check us out at GiveNation.World. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. So say, Mister Mister Oz Sultan, the King of Swing. I always think that Sultan's like the Sultan of Swing, Babe Ruth. So I kind of want to call you Babe. I think Ruth. in Dire Straits. Maybe yeah, Sultan Dire Straits. Swing. Yeah, yeah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, but that that involved like a whole disguise. We were okay, so I was going to print out like little Travis cutouts. Oh, I was going to print out little Travis cutouts for people to wear, and I was going to call them travestites. Oh wow, nice! <laughs> wow, <laughs> and they're like little like, like little outfits people can wear. Yeah, they're dressing up as you. Okay, nice, like a hoodie, like a hoodie and some jeans and a hat. <laughs> Very good, travestites. Okay. So Oz, you you know you're comfortable holding this microphone. I mean, I'm starting to think that maybe you want to do your own show. 
Uh, it might not be a bad idea. I mean, there's a lot of market out there. Mm. What would you talk about if you were to have a show? You know, we still have the digital divide. We still have consumers not understanding crypto. And we've got like half of America that could like wire into this and completely change things. So, mm. I don't know. Like kind of heavy, but you know, it's, it's, everyone's kind of looking for something. Mm-hmm. And there just isn't the content to deliver anything. Yeah. I mean, you're not busy enough as it is. I mean, you don't really got much to do, right? So doing a podcast seems easy to add on to your, right? <laughs> it takes a little planning. Oh, yeah, I saw your LinkedIn. You have like 40 things. Like, I'm pretty, and I'm an advisor of this. I don't know this. The foundation. Like, damn, how he many LinkedIn be, things you have? He should be a fashion advisor. I mean, he flew in this, you know, a three-piece getup. That is today. true. Like, you know, in the old days, you know, people used to get dressed, mm-hmm. you know, fashionably to fly. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we go in our flip-flops. Is that so TSA doesn't harass you or what? No, I have TSA pre-check. <laughs> Not clear? Huh? Or do you have clear? I also have clear. Yeah, clear is great. Very nice. But they have it's like an easy pass, you know? You have like They're like, two, wait, two wait, hold months. on. That, I think he was the Muslim guy. Go get him. Oh, it's, 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 it's great. There's, there's, you know, I don't get the full Muslim anymore. Oh, nice. That's funny. Well, as long as, you know, we've got these guests here saying a few words, I think, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't turn to our other guests here and let sure. them say a little something. Aaron Sell, our producer, is, uh, is in the house. What do you want to tell the citizens of the Republic of Bad Cryptopia? Stay bad. Oh, uh, that was an easy one. We're ending the show. We don't even got to talk to Ryan yeah, now. Shows a, hey, Ryan, come on over here, buddy. So Ryan works with our team out of Kansas City as well. Ryan, why don't you tell everybody how to pronounce your crazy name? It's Loy Kano. Okay, fine. And what's, uh, what, what is your position in the Republic? Business development. Ah, biz dev. Yeah, so a lot of people that... you. Strategies. Email marketing strategies, talking to people, emailing them before they get on the show. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're here to help facilitate that on location at the event. Yeah. Meeting people in the event, learning about their companies, and uh, just en- enjoying it all. There's a lot that it takes to make this happen. You know, people just hear our voices, and it started with just our voices but now there's this whole team that yeah, supports crazy. us and makes it you know really rock we're getting close to like in july it'll be three years of this show like that's like what percentage of podcasts last three years like very i'm like there's not many at all i bet you well we haven't made it yet we haven't made it yet so it's true that is true he keeps weed shaming me Keep Ryan. weed shaming me. I'm, gonna, I'm like, not shaming I'm gonna you off and be i'm upset. not you could smoke all the dupe <laughs> you want i don't care all right just as long as you can you know, talk into a mic. A weed shaming. That should be a song. Weed Don't shamer. weed shame me. I used to smoke half a pound a day. You ain't nothing. You never smoke nothing. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Mr. Joe oh, Gosh, okay. You're really crazy in college. <laughs> on that note, we're going to wrap this one up from Denver, Colorado. <laughs> High above the uh, <laughs> the basin, yeah, yeah. That's good. Uh, twenty-three floors up here, actually, and uh, I guess we can all end the show together on the count of three. You guys know what to say, right? Here we go: one, two, three. Stay bad. Who's bad? 
The Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of Bitcoin's and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor.